Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 9, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name again is Rick. I am just, uh, even as we speak, finishing the last revisions to a new daily devotional called the Jesus-Centered Daily, which I've been telling you about for a little while, but now it's uh, shifting into the design phase and the cover has been designed for this, and you can actually go to Amazon and look at what this thing looks like. You obviously can't look inside of it because there's no inside to look at yet, but if you want to see what this is going to look like, you can go to Amazon and uh, search for the Jesus Center Daily. You might have to plug my name in there, too, to, to get to it, but you can take a look and see what this beautiful cover of this daily devotional is going to look like. comes out October 6th. And we'll let you know more about that as the time gets closer. Um, but it's it's sort of, um, I would say, sort of like the last planet in the solar system of the Jesus-centered resources that, that we've created, starting with the Jesus-centered Bible and including the Jesus-centered life and the devotions uh, that, that came out of the Jesus-centered life and... Um, a, a whole constellation of, of Jesus-centered resources that we have that uh, we often put links to on our episode page to, but you can also just go to, to group.com and plug in Jesus-centered into the search box, and you'll see all of those Jesus-centered things that uh, we've created, and really our heart and passion behind this and everything we create is to uh, s- uh, set an environment where uh, our natural, everyday rhythms draw us closer and closer to the heart of Jesus, and we're working to try to create as many things as we can that are helpful to, to have that happen, because when you get close to the heart of Jesus, everything changes then. Um, you, you change from the inside out. And that's, that's a little of what we're going to explore today. This is uh, the fifth episode in a new series we're doing called Foundations, and um, today's today's episode is called Root to Fruit, Root to Fruit, um, and that doesn't mean anything <laughs> until I explain it. So we know that following Jesus is supposed to change our lives, right? That that's what this is really all about, that when, we, when we're following Jesus, we expect our life to change somehow. It's supposed to somehow make, I guess you could say, a, a better version of ourselves, or it's supposed to fill the hole in our soul and give us a purpose in life and... It's supposed to transform who we are. Transformation is really um, the promise of what it means to come to Jesus. But what are the mechanics of that transformation? How does transformation actually happen in us? How 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 does that deep change actually uh, take uh, take hold in our life? And what, if anything, can we do to help that happen? Well, that's. That's what we'll explore today, from root to fruit. So a couple of nights ago, I was with the young people in, in the 20 or so young people that are in our uh, group that meets in our house each each and every week, and uh, they never know what to expect. I had this a couple nights ago, one of the 
one of the senior hires in the group looked at me and said, you have a, you have a strange look in your eye tonight. I, I have a feeling tonight's going to be even more different than normal. And I said, you are very perceptive. So I put out a bunch of uh, plastic cups, clear plastic cups full of water on our kitchen island. And we started the night out um, unusually in the kitchen instead of our normal comfortable living room arrangement. And uh, so we were all gathered around the kitchen island, and I um, and each each young person uh, had to select one of these clear plastic cups full of water, and then a little Dixie cup that had a little bit of powder in it. And I told them that the powder was uh, water purifying powder, and that I wanted them to pour that powder into their cup, mark their name on their cup so they would remember whose cup is whose, but pour that powder into the cup, and then they had to stir it uh, kind of vigorously for about five minutes uh, as part of the process of, of fully dissolving that powder in their cup. So while they were stirring for five minutes, I was asking them some questions, and we were having a conversation. So and and some of that conversation was simply <laughs> to to make sure that they were there for five minutes stirring. But I here's what I asked them: um, I asked them when we choose Jesus, while He's simultaneously choosing us, because that's what it means to commit our lives in relationship to Him. To be chosen by Jesus means to choose Him while He's choosing us. It's this dance um, that we talked about in last in the last episode that looks a lot like the dance of a relationship that heads to marriage. You're mutually choosing each other toward that wedding day. So when we mutually choose Jesus, he chooses us, we choose him, um, does anything actually change in us when that happens? I mean, do we are we fundamentally any different after we've made... after the wedding day, I guess is a way of saying it. Is there something different about us when that... A relationship is consummated into something that now we're committed to Jesus. Well, um, I think it would. Uh, I told them that it would be good for us to hear from Paul, who kind of lays out for the Jesus followers in Ephesus what this Christian life is supposed to look like. I mean, what 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 the transformation is supposed to look like in us when we've committed to Him. So, I thought uh, I would read to you what I read to them. This is from Ephesians four verses 17 through 32, and uh, he's, he's um, trying to urge um, those the followers of Jesus in Ephesus to live and be different uh, than they were before. So here's, here's where it starts, Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. With the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives them, uh, gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, now here comes a long list of things. Since you've heard about him and you've embraced the truth about him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception, and instead let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So here he's saying, uh, be transformed. Put on your transformed self. And what does that look like? He says, well, so stop telling lies, 
let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. And if you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul language or abusive language, and let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And don't bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he's identified you as his own guaranteeing that you'll be saved on the day of redemption. So get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. So here we have Paul um, listing off all of the stuff that should be transformed in us, and this is what it's supposed to look like. And the question that comes out of this, and the question I asked those kids around the around uh, our kitchen island is, well, why would Paul give us such a long list of changed behaviors that seem on the surface just overwhelming to hear them all together? Why would he do that? It It sounds really like a long list of things we're supposed to simply try harder at. Um, and I think that's how we typically... Um, translate uh, stuff like this in the Bible is we read it and inside we go, wow, that's a lot of stuff I need to work harder at. Yeah, I, I need to redouble my efforts at this. Um, and it, it can sound, you know, like a road we've just been down right around the, the start of the year. It can sound like the way we are around the start of the new year, where we make all these resolutions about changes in our life that we are determined that are going to be different this year. So, and those those resol- resolutions are things like vowing to lose weight and getting fed and getting our financial house in order and we're going to finish that degree or we're going to write that book or we're going to start that podcast whatever it is, our typical approach to this kind of deep change, a change that we know is needed and and we want to be different, our typical approach to that is sort of lifted right out of what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 4 try harder or else is essentially what he's what he's saying and so uh so I, I i asked the the young people around the island there you know what what are some typical things we do when we want to change and they they said you know some of the basics of what i just described you know we double down we discipline ourselves more we we jut our chin out and and by our strength of will we say we're going to do it this time and um, the the strength that we bring to the table here is really our own strength, and we we are just counting on our willpower to carry us through this. So, after we had this little conversation, uh, the five minutes of stirring was enough, and and uh, I had them leave behind their cups with their names on them, and we went back into our comfortable living room um, because after you've stirred this uh, purifying powder in into these cups. Now it has to sit for about five minutes before the water is is truly purified. Now keep in mind, I had not told them a pretty big secret at this point. Um, this is everything I've told you is all they knew at this point, but I had a pretty big secret that I hadn't told them yet, and I'll get back to what that is in just a minute. I'll reveal what that is in just a second. So... Um, the the pursuit then we entered into is the pursuit we're going to enter into t- today here on the podcast. If it seems like Paul is urging us to simply try harder to live the Christian life, 
then what are all of the hurdles and the flaws in that scheme? So, so if you think about uh, your own story and your own record of a quote-unquote accomplishment in trying to transform yourself and become a better version of yourself, some of the, 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 the wicked edged uh, side effects of this are that you can become arrogant if you think you got it dialed in. Yeah, you know, I'm going to get fit, and I'm going to go to start doing CrossFit, and it actually takes, I keep doing CrossFit, and about six months in, you start to uh, lord it over the people in your life that aren't CrossFitters. Um, yeah, look what I've done. I, I've kept at it. It's pretty easy to u- lose your humility when in one area of your life, you think you've got it dialed in. Uh, you think you've summoned enough willpower that you've actually made a change. So arrogance is a is a hazard along the, along this way of simply trying harder to be better in the Christian life. You can also easily feel overwhelmed, uh, just as thinking about all of the things Paul just listed, it's easy to feel overwhelmed with all of the things we're supposed to be better at. Um, it's easy to feel like a failure because of that, like I, I just can't get it right. No matter how many times I try this, I never persist, and I always end in failure. You can um, slip into judgment of other people, like uh, I'm doing this better than they are. Uh, well, I might be bad, but at least I'm not as bad as that person. Um Exhaustion can set in because it's hard to, you know, spin that many plates in your life. You can feel shame at its depth, just shame that, about yourself that that there's something about you that you just can't change and you wish you could. Uh, it it goes on and on. So how the question then is how is this try harder to be better system any different from the burden the people in the Old Testament felt in trying to keep the law? So this, the system of righteousness under the Old Covenant was expressed through the law. Here is the law, here is how you need to live. And um, the people of God quickly discovered that they were terrible at keeping the law. And so a whole system of animal sacrifice grew up around their failure. You know, we know we're going to fail, we fail all the time. In order to cleanse ourselves, to maintain connection to God, we have to offer sacrifice for our sin and failure in the whole area of keeping the law. So this elaborate system was clear evidence that people in the Old Testament simply could not keep the law, not even for a little bit. The Pharisees tried to put out there that they were keeping the law perfectly, but this is the very thing that angered Jesus so much, because those Pharisees knew they weren't. They knew the, the, to use Jesus' words, they knew the inside of their cup was dirty, but all they cared about was keeping the outside of their cup shiny and clean. So they, they put out a facade to the, the people that they were perfectly keeping the law when they full well knew that inside their cup, it was pretty dirty. And Jesus hated that kind of duplicity and hypocrisy from the Pharisees. The truth is, the, um, Jesus and Paul make clear that the purpose of the law was to show us all that we couldn't keep it, <laughs> that, that we did not have the ability to keep the law. That was the purpose of the law. It's not that the law is bad. The law represents all of the goodness of the kingdom of God and all of the goodness that Jesus embodies. But the point in, in, in promoting the law 
was really, uh, <laughs> it's so strange to say this, but the p- point in promoting the law was to make sure everybody knew that they couldn't keep it, <laughs> that they were all locked up in failure in trying to keep the law. So if you think about the burden that people in the Old Testament carried, that they had to uh, keep up with all of these standards, and the Pharisees kept adding little substandards into the law all the time, making it even more impossible to live this out. I don't think that way of life is that different than the way a lot of church-going Christians today live. They live under this shadow of trying harder to keep up with what they know they're supposed to be doing. And look, Paul listed it all there in Ephesians 4, that stuff we're we're supposed to be doing. So I just need to buckle down and try harder. It's not that different than the way the Old Testament people lived under the shadow of the law. Aren't we also simply trying harder and harder to meet the standards of perfection that we're told will really make us you know, a committed Christian? Um, and if you ask somebody about this who's um, at all honest, they'll most likely say right off the bat, I'm not very good at it. I screw up all the time. Um, yeah, I, I'm really terrible at this or that, or if you ask somebody about their quiet time or their prayer life, or you can name whatever the standards are for what we are supposed to be as as Christian people. Most people, uh, their first response is, yeah, I'm not very good at that, or I'm a failure at that, or yeah, I'm not very good at that, or I'm not keeping up with that the way I, I want to. Some version of, I'm not doing very well at this, so not that different than how people living under the Old Covenant would have answered if you asked them, how are they keeping the law? So there's a tension here then. So what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to um, work harder, uh, like Paul seems to be implying? Well, if I do that, then and it just leads to failure, then what's the point? And aren't we living under a new covenant? Why are we living like we're still under this old covenant and we're trying to keep up the law in a perfect way? There's, there's confusion and tension around this. Well, it's interesting because Paul answers some of this tension. Um, I'm going to read you something now from Romans 7, his letter to the Jesus followers in Rome, and I want you to think about the previous thing we just read in Ephesians 4, where Paul's talking about this is what it looks like, you know, the, the, to be transformed. Now, now listen to him in Romans 7 talk about his own tension around this. So here's what he says, starting in verse 14. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I'm all too human. I'm a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself. For what I want to do, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So he's saying, if there's something in me that doesn't like the wrong thing I'm doing, I'm agreeing that there's a standard I wish I could meet, which is represented by the law. So he goes on in verse 17, so I am not the one doing the wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Now hang with him here. Here he starts to get uh, drilled down into this. And, And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, 
but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing the wrong. It's the sin living in me that does it. So an important little distinction here, I just want to pause for a second. Often um, people who are born again following Jesus, they continue to insist that there is nothing good in them, when actually that's a that's a denial of what Jesus clearly says happens to us when we commit ourselves to him, that we are born over again, that our hearts now are good, not deceitful. And, and Paul is making this distinction here. He's saying that the essence of who he is, who he really is, um, is different than how he acts sometimes, because he knows how he acts is wrong. So he's saying, the only way I would know that that is wrong is if there's something changed in me, fundamentally different in me. So what is the, th- the part of me that continues to want to do wrong? He's saying, it's not really who I am. That part that wants to keep doing wrong things is not really who I am. That's what Paul's trying to say. He continues in verse 21, I've discovered this principle of life, that when I, when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. He's just reiterating this same thing over and over again. I love God's law with all my heart. But there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that's still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? He's saying, who will resolve this tension in me? I know who I am, but why do I keep doing this stuff? What, what's the answer to this tension? And then he answers his own question. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. We skip over that little two-letter word, in. The answer is in Jesus, is what he's saying. So, you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. But here's the deal, he says. Now there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. All of that stuff that I do that I don't want to do and that sin that... I seem to gravitate back to, well, I'm not condemned for that anymore, because why? He says there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. So he's saying that the, the answer to this problem, this tension, is in belonging to Jesus, being in him, and he being in us. And that when that happens, we have the spirit of Jesus living in us who frees us from the power that this sin um, exerts in our life, meaning that transformation comes when the spirit in us helps us to stop going to that default setting where we do wrong things. It's the spirit of Jesus in us when we belong to him that really counteracts that sort of gravitational pull back toward doing all these things that Paul listed in Ephesians 4 we're not supposed to do anymore. hope that makes sense. So um, here Paul is dealing with this tension head on. He's saying there is an answer to it, and the answer to resolving that tension between what we are and what we need to be is really in belonging to Jesus. But what does belonging really mean? I mean, that becomes then crucial for us. If we're talking about how does transformation happen in our lives, what are the mechanics of it? It all hinges on belonging, according to Paul. 
what what does belonging mean? How do I become a belonger, a a belonged believer in Jesus? I guess is another way of saying it. So let's let's head back to the kitchen island again. Um, I you know the, it had been five minutes, so we I brought all the young people back into our kitchen to take a look at what had happened to their uh, clear plastic cups full of water, and what they saw when they came in was about the top three quarters of every cup had clear water in it. When they were stirring the powder in, it was dark. It was kind of a brownish, brackish color as they stirred, and they kept stirring. They thought that somehow the power would be like Harry Potter powder, where you just throw it in there and it some, somehow clears up the water. That's not what happened. They put the powder in, and it became kind of a brownish, brackish color as they stirred. But when they came into the kitchen, that top three-quarters of their cup was clear water, but at the bottom were these kind of floating orange flakes. It was gross. They immediately said, oh, gross, look what happened to this. And they were trying to figure out, what is that stuff? What are, what are those orange flakes at the bottom of my cup? Well, then I told them my secret. I said, um, earlier today, I filled up every one of these cups with water from our toilet tank. <laughs> no, it wasn't the toilet bowl. The toilet bowl would be truly gross. Um, but I, I filled up these with water from the tank. So that is water that was fed fresh into the tank, and then when you flush the toilet, it comes into the toilet. So it's not water from the bowl, but nevertheless, it's still gross. But as soon as you can imagine just the sounds, the the shrieks, especially from the girls, as soon as I said, this is toilet water. I mean, even the fact that they had been using a plastic spoon to stir in those cups freaked them out, that, that they were actually stirring around toilet water. But I told them the truth, that that each of them had added the correct amount of purifying powder to each cup, and that now the water in their cup was pure. Um, the only thing left to do, if you're going to drink that water, is take a, a cloth and filter out those flakes. So I told them, I showed them that I had a cloth, and I said, so you can believe what I'm saying right now, that this water is drinkable now or not, but if you believe it's true that this water is is really has really been purified, the only real way to to act on that belief is to drink some of the water. So I said, how many of you would be willing to drink your water now if we filtered out the orange flakes from your water? Well, I had no idea. <laughs> I thought it's entirely possible no one would, just by way of you know um, insider knowledge here. Uh, my wife and my daughter categorically refused to drink this water. Um, they, and they had their reasons. And my daughter's reasons were, hey, my dad eats and drinks lots of things that are rotten that the rest of us would never eat or drink. So how would I know whether this is safe to drink or not? Because I've seen him eat and drink other stuff that no one else would eat and drink. So I'm not drinking this. So uh, I, unfortunately, my daughter doesn't trust me, um, but that's the way it goes. Uh but the, the, the half of the group said, yes, they would drink it. So I went to one cup after the other, um, filtered out the orange flakes from their cup. Uh, so they poured their cup in, in, through that cloth, and uh, it dripped through to another cup. And one after the other, these kids drank the water. Um, we actually, I actually have a picture of one of them drinking the toilet water that will I'll have uh, Julia post on the episode page so you can see with your own eyes 
bunch of kids around a, a kitchen island, and one of them he he didn't just sip the water; he guzzled his entire cup of toilet water. So I'll, we'll post that on the on the episode page if you want to take a look. Um, but then after we were done, after half of the kids uh, drank their water, I asked them. So for those of you who took a drink, so what gave you the freedom to do that? Why why would you choose to do that? And then I asked the other half that did not take a drink, what held you back from doing that? Well, those that that took a drink said, um, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Or they, uh, but uh, most of them said some version of, we trust you. So if you say the water is pure, then I believe the water is pure. So I trust you enough that I'm going to drink it. Um, That's essentially what most of those kids said in one way or another, that they trusted me enough to do it. The kids that said they wouldn't, they weren't willing to try it, most of them said, no matter how much I trust you, I could never drink that water. It turns my stomach just to look at it, to see those orange flakes. I can't bring myself to drink that water, no matter what you say. You could be a Mother Teresa telling me this, and I would not drink the water. I just can't bring myself to it. It's too gross. And by the way, um, after this experience, um, we had a, a time where we had the kids go and pursue some stories that uh, we're going to explore a bit later here on the podcast in First John. And while they were doing that, my wife said, you are going to go back in the kitchen and completely sanitize wherever that water touched, right? <laughs> so I did. I wiped down the kitchen, so there was no more evidence of toilet water anywhere. But the 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 upshot here it, it, it opened up a conversation about purification and trust and how do, how are we really sure that adding something into that toilet water would purify it? How do we really know? And then what's the proof of that? Um, how do we prove that we believe that something really transformative has happened? Well, the only way to prove it is to go all in, is to drink it, to act as though it's true. Now, I just said belief, um, which is tied to belonging in Jesus, is tied to going all in on acting what you know is true. Think about the number of times that Jesus said to someone, uh, your faith is incredible, to the centurion, to the Canaanite woman, to the woman who touched the hem of his cloak, um, and on and on, to the man by the pool of Bethesda. These are all people that acted on, on the truth about who Jesus is and what he was capable of doing. They didn't just mentally assent, they put their skin in the game. That's, that was what uh, Jesus marked as belief and faith, is when they acted as though what he said was true. And if you think about this experience around the toilet water, those that took a drink were acting as though that powder actually purified the water. They took action. They, they did something as a result of it. That's real belief. So Paul is telling us that our belonging to Jesus does purify and transform us. But how then does that belonging really happen? What does it mean to go all in or to act on our belief leading to this kind of belonging? 
And the, the question really gets down to, if you use my illustration, how do we know he's truly changed us from toilet water to purified water? How do we know that? Uh, what, are, what is the evidence of our transformation? So I, I said that we're going to pursue what I um, had our young people pursue that night. We're going to look at um, the book of 1 John to look at some examples that, that John gives on um, how this belonging happens. So I thought it'd be interesting to pay attention to John, because John, of course, was the uh, youngest of all the disciples. He described himself, um, I think, very uh, sweetly, very powerfully. He always, he, whenever he was re- referencing himself in his gospel, he he called himself the disciple Jesus loved. So that's how he referred to himself. Uh, he was he was uh, one of the two sons of Zebedee. There's James and John. He's the younger of the two. Um, Zebedee owned and operated his own commercial fishing business, and his sons worked at that business with him. They're um, among the, the three disciples that Jesus first calls on that shore of the Sea of Galilee, where he says, uh, I'll make you fishers of men if you follow me. And they, they leave behind their business right then and follow Jesus. So it's that John we're talking about. He's the only disciple who actually dies of natural causes. The other 11 all are martyred. John dies in prison on the Isle of Patmos. Um, he lives to a very old age, um, and he writes the book of 1 John when he's quite old. Um, uh, uh, it's unclear whether he was already imprisoned or not, but he was quite old when he wrote the book of 1 John. So uh, I thought it would be interesting for us to skip around to a few places in 1 John and see what clues we can pick up from him about what what does belonging actually look like? How does it happen in us? And I thought it would be interesting because John identifies himself as belonging to Jesus. So he has a unique perspective on what this looks like to move from mere belief to, the, to what belonging means, because when we belong, we're transformed. So let's look at the first one, 1 John 1, 5 through 10. I'll just read this, and then we'll circle back. So here's what John says. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light, and there's no darkness in him at all. So we're lying if we say we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we've not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So the question we're thinking about here in this little section is, what is the root and fruit of transformation? Title of this, of this episode what is the root and fruit of transformation that we can discover as John talks about a life of following Jesus? So let's loop back to what he says here, um, looking for the root and the fruit. So he's, he's saying, um, if, we have, if we belong to Jesus, we, we can't, by definition, go on living in spiritual darkness, because then we're incongruent. We're not practicing the truth. So he's saying... Part of the key to belonging 
is living more congruently. So uh, he, he says um, uh, the message we've heard from Jesus is that God is light and there's no darkness in him. So if we live in the light, he says, then we have fellowship with Jesus and with each other. But if we live in the darkness, we don't. So he's really saying, um, live on the outside what is true on the inside. And conversely, um, uh, put whatever is in the darkness inside out into the light. And he extends that by, by saying, if we say we don't have any sin, we're just fooling ourselves. We're not really living in the light. So he's saying, be honest about what's going on inside. Instead of hiding it, bring it out into the light. And then confess it to him. Just say, Jesus, I'm aware that this is going on inside of me. I'm sorry. I'm confessing it to you. And what he's saying here is that's part of the act of belonging. It's to not fool, try to fool Jesus by uh, living one way on your surface, but living quite differently underneath. It goes back to what I said before about Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees. He, what he didn't like is that they painted a shiny picture on the outside of their cup when the inside of the cup was totally gross and dirty. And he, and he basically says, clean the inside of the cup, and, and then the outside of the cup will match what you expect to be by looking at the outside of the cup. So if we clean ourselves inside, and the cleaning process is simply confessing, getting what's in the dark out into the light, to not we're not holding or hiding things inside, we're... We're living um, clean in the sense that, not that we don't have bad stuff going on, but that we're honest about that bad stuff. We, we haul it out into the light to someone. So, and he says, when we do that, he's faithful to cleanse us from all that. But he, he goes on, if, if we claim we haven't sinned, then we're calling God a liar. We're showing that he has, his word has no place in our hearts. So we either admit the truth about what's on the inside of our cup and ask him to clean it for us, or we hide it. And if you're going to belong to Jesus, um, part of that life is admitting what's inside there. Let's look at a second one. Uh, this is from 1 John 2. Let me flip over here in my Jesus-centered Bible. 1 John 2, starting in verse 7, and we're going to read 7 through 11. So here's what he says. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it's an old one you've had from the very beginning. This old commandment, which is to love one another, is the same message you heard before, yet it is also new. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and you are also living it, for the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already shining. If anyone claims I'm living in the light but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in the darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. So here he's continuing this light and dark thing still, and he says what belonging looks like is that because we are loved at a, at a fundamental level by Jesus, we, uh, we also love others. In that same way, we don't harbor hate uh, for others and judgment for others inside while on our outer surface we act another way. Uh, I hear all the time from people that one of the most painful things in life is to be in relationship with people who you know 
are are acting sweet and kind and accepting on the outside, but are lying to you or backstabbing you or don't really like you at all, they're they're living a facade with you. This is a very painful way to live in relationship. And what John is saying here is if if you want to belong to Jesus, then make congruent your love for people, that that your love for them is congruent. It's true, out in the light. You're not harboring something different on the inside where it's dark. Let's skip ahead to 1 John chapter 3. Uh, let's see, verses 14 through 17. Let's take a look there. Here, he's on this whole um, focus of love. So here's what he says. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. Another way of saying that is, if we love those around us with the love that Jesus has given us, then it, it proves we belong. We're no longer living in death, in the darkness, we're living in the light. Um, so here, here he continues, but a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life in them. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we ought also to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Well, here's something that's easy to miss. Here he says, uh, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So he's saying, we, we've already experienced what real love is. We have the love of Jesus in us. Never forget that this process of belonging, where the Spirit lives in us, means that we have the love that Jesus has shown the whole world living inside of us. Will we uh, choose to live that out with those around us? And I don't just mean when I say love those around us, I think the way we translate that is be sweet and kind to everybody in our life. Wow, that takes a lot of discipline. That's really shooting low. Love is always focused on the best good for the other. And sometimes love, just as Jesus showed, can look pretty hard. Sometimes love has an edge. Sometimes love, as G.K. Chesterton said, sometimes our definition of love is going to have to change if we're going to be able to accept and love Jesus, who is love. When he is loving people, sometimes it's a hard love, because what he wants is that person's best good. He wants freedom from captivity for everybody. And sometimes that looks incredibly kind and tender, especially when it's scandalous to do so. And sometimes it looks hard, because for some people, the only way they can come to freedom is by having their the system of their life that they've set up blown up underneath their feet. And so he does it. So what Jesus is saying is, this kind of love is actually in us because Jesus is in us. So we'll know we belong to him by definition when we start loving people the way Jesus loves them, when we let Jesus love people the way he loves them, I guess is another way of saying it. To belong means to yield, to, to invite and to yield to the love of Jesus in us so that we yield more to his, his kind of love, which is an enemy-loving kind of love. Let's uh, maybe take one more, uh, 1 John 
Let's go to 1 John chapter 5. Flip over here in the Jesus Center Bible. 1 John chapter 5. Um, I'm just going to read one verses 1 through 5. We'll make this our last one. Here's John says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know, uh, we know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And there's something very important locked up in this last little thing that John says. Um, he says uh, that, we, that we'll know that we belong to God, that we are his children, that we belong to Jesus when we keep his commandments. But this, this would sound to the people listening to this or to reading John's letter like that same Old Testament you know, keep keep up the recipe perfectly, you know, keep up the law perfectly. That's what it sounds like. But John goes to, to great lengths here to say, look, the, the, the keeping of those commandments isn't a burden at all. It doesn't take discipline or anything when you are, when you belong to Jesus, when you have yielded to him and are, are inviting his love to be expressed through you, when you've yielded to him at that level, it's not hard at all to keep his commandments. In fact, the reason it's not hard is because those commandments are actually fruit. We have changed the root of who we are, and because we've changed the root of us, the fruit naturally appears. This is really the point of all of Jesus's botanical metaphors. He's trying to say that our life, our transformed life, um, isn't doesn't come from disciplining ourselves at greater and greater levels. The way I compare that is uh, to the whole grafting metaphor that, that is in Scripture. When Jesus says, you are the branch, I am the vine, you have to abide in me, and Paul takes that same metaphor and talks about what grafting looks like, that we're grafted into the vine. When you're grafted in as a dead branch, what happens, the, the reason that that dead branch can later bear fruit is that once you're grafted into that vine, you get the life of that vine flowing up through your deadness, and it rejuvenates the dead branch and eventually produces fruit on that dead branch. But what we typically do in the church is what the Old Testament people also did. We work hard to tape, duct tape as much fruit as we can to our dead branches. We, we work really hard to produce that fruit and duct tape it onto our branches. And Jesus is saying, and John is reiterating here, that's not how this works. That's a whole lot of work. That's a huge burden. But when you change the root, when you are grafted into that vine, all you're doing is yielding yourself to that vine so that his life can flow up through your life, and then you produce fruit naturally. And a tree doesn't have to work to produce fruit. It just does it naturally. The, the fruit appears. And that's what John is saying, that the evidence of belonging to Jesus is that when this fruit appears, starts appearing in your life, it just starts sprouting up. And it's not because you've disciplined yourself toward it. It's because you've, you've become more belonged, <laughs> I guess is a way of saying it, that you belong more deeply to Jesus. 
you've sunk yourself into him more deeply, and now that life is flowing up through your branch, and it's just producing this root that looks like keeping the commandments. Um, that's why it's not a burden. And and he's, the last thing he says here is that every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. We achieve the victory through our faith. The faith comes in believing that Jesus is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. That's what faith is. It's faith and trust in the heart of Jesus. To go back to the toilet water in the kitchen, um, those that drank the water, believing that it was pure, um, they did it on some basis of trusting me. One, One of the young people said, as I was thinking about this and my trust of you, he said, what's the worst that could happen if I trust you at this? Maybe I'll spend a week in bed because I'm sick. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's that's quite a high price you're, you're willing to put up with there. But he was basically saying that when, when you think through it, what I know about your heart is I'm willing to trust you with this. That's that, And then we act on it. That's what makes it really trust. And that's really also what, what John is describing here. When we have the love of Jesus in us, and when we act on it, as though that love was real and that it's something real that we can offer others, we cement our belonging in him in the end. I hope that makes sense. So the title of, the, of this episode, um, which is From Root to Fruit, it's a reminder that our life with Jesus is really all about the transformation of our root, because once that is transformed, we naturally produce fruit in our lives. That's, that's the evidence of the transformation, is that fruit. And the transformation happens when we yield to Jesus in our lives. We invite him. Instead of living a secret life on the inside, we live everything on the outside. Um, everything is in the light. We're honest with him. And we're because we're honest with him, we're always in need of him in a kind of a palpable way. If, if what's in the darkness is always in the light, you're always coming to him, expressing your, our need for him. And because we need him, we abide in him. And because we abide in him, we belong to him. And because we belong to him, we produce fruit in our lives that isn't burdensome or hard to produce. It just happens naturally. So when we try harder to get better in our life, this is Paul's point, by the way, when we try harder to get better, when we live as if we still live under the old covenant, working hard to discipline ourselves, become more righteous, um, Paul is saying, you know, that just leads to utter frustration. <laughs> what, what am I going to do? I can't, I can't do it. Um, when we get to that place where we say, I can't do it, um, that's actually our, our moment of greatest strength, because we're saying what's true, that we need the strength of Jesus that our weakness, in our weakness, we are actually strong, because in our weakness, we are admitting what's true, that we need Jesus. The, this old covenant kind of living, the kind of living that I say still typifies people who go to church today, um, that, that kind of living um, is weak and temporary. It never works. It's just like trying to keep up our New Year's resolutions. They're typically weak and temporary. It just never works. We get sucked into a cycle of shame um, because of it and failure. We just can't keep up. Jesus is offering us instead strength and permanence. So the radical change of our root, this grafting process, produces a different kind of fruit. 
And in the end, those are the markers of the Spirit in our life, or the markers of obedience to Him. So this transformation is a root-to-fruit transformation. The focus of our lives is not on the fruit. It's on the root. And, and the, the, that process comes as we get closer and closer to the authentic and true heart of Jesus, and as we do, we invite Him more, and we invite Him more, we yield more, we yield more. Um, this is what, this is what um, uh, Paul and the other apostles mean when they say, um, I must decrease so—oh, this is John the Baptist saying this, I must decrease so he can increase. It's kind of a metaphoric statement for all of us. It doesn't mean we become less ourselves. It means that we crave more of Him and ask for more of Him. We yield to more of Him. That's what belonging looks like in the end. If you can picture in your mind, belonging looks like a a grafted branch in the vine. That's when we really belong. And when we do, um, then we can live as that purified water is. We can live trusting that He has cleaned us from the inside out, and we don't have to live under the uh, shadow of evil or under the thumb of control. We can live free because we believe that the transformation has actually happened in us. All right, gang, there you have it. Uh, That is uh, this episode. I encourage you to check out uh, this episode's links. So you're just going to go to PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com, and you're looking for Season 5, Episode 9, Root to Fruit. Um, Check out the links there. I mentioned I'm going to give Julia uh, a link to the picture of one of our young people drinking toilet water. That's worth going there all alone. And by the way, if you want to make sure you don't miss one of these episodes, uh, just go to wherever you get your podcasts and, and sign up to make sure that it's in your feed every week. So you can find our podcasts on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you normally get your podcasts. And uh, gang, I'm looking forward to continuing this foundation series next week. So we'll see you then.